Section 6 of Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists by Pope St. Pius X Translated by Thomas E. Judge This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3 of Appendix to Encyclical Letter Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists Kant and the Modernists the modernists, relying on Kant's subjective method, which they call the method of imminence, hold that the Christian religion is credible because it best corresponds to the exigencies of our souls. Everything is explained by saying that truth is not transcendent and is not measured by its conformity with its object, but depends on man himself and develops by adaptation to his various needs. According to Kant, the great and necessary truths of religion appeal to the will, not to the intellect. All religion springs from our need of the infinite. Kant admits necessary truths as such. The principles of mathematics he considers unchangeable, because they formulate the laws of space and time, which are subjective forms of our own senses. Our pure reason also imposes laws on nature, and the external universe considered as cosmos, or orderly and organized whole, derives all its principles of organization from the human mind. Science, therefore, as such, or the general principles which we deduce from phenomena by means of the principle of causality, is a collection of laws imposed on the universe by our own minds, and a universality and force cannot be questioned by the sceptic because we cannot consistently, with the constitution of our intellects, think the universe otherwise. Material bodies are a mere aggregation, or chaos. Similarly, the will imposes on the intellect principles that are necessary for life, necessary, that is, to regulate morality. They are free will, the immortality of the soul, and the existence of God. Kant also admits that religious faith may be accepted as an ideal solace, but he reduces it to myths and imaginary symbols. He recognizes nothing else in the Bible and in the scriptural narrative of Jesus Christ himself except myths and symbols. By the word imminent was formerly meant a characteristic of vital actions which, of their own nature, are not terminated in an external effect, but remain in the subject himself, as his act and perfection. In the new school, imminence implies that from the subject is derived, either in whole, or for the most part, the determining reason of the various acts of which his nature is capable, and this is to be understood not merely of the order of knowledge, but of the order of reality, and of the supernatural as well as of the natural order. Hence there is imminent in us not only the capacity to receive supernatural gifts, but also the active power, corresponding to supernatural elevation, to operate by means of them, and even their determining reason, which is a natural need or exigency. This concept of imminence implies imminence of the higher forms and natures in the inferior, whence follows the natural evolution of one from the other. This philosophy of action and moral dogmatism is excellently refuted in a recent work 
by Reverend G. Mattiussi, S.I. Il Veleno Canziano, Nuova e Antica Critica della Ragione. Errors of the Modernists Concerning the Origin of Christianity Contrary to the Modernists' views, we Catholics hold that Christianity is not a subconscious and spontaneous evolution, that it is not an emanation from the religious consciousness of humanity, that it arises through a positive intervention of the gratuitous and miraculous condescension of God. It is constituted by the historical fact of the Incarnation. It is, essentially, a supernatural gift, an interior gift of grace which nourishes the Christian life an external gift of the teaching and precepts of Christ, which entrusted to the Apostles, is communicated to us by the Church and its infallible head. To the thesis of efference, which would have it arise from below, from the depths of human nature and the bowels of humanity, we radically oppose the thesis of afference, which affirms the specifically supernatural character of the dogmas and virtues of Catholicism and the gratuitousness of the entire Christian order. Footnote. The words efference and afference, by which the modernists contrast their system and intellectualism, are borrowed from the names of the efferent, outgiving or motor, and the afferent, in-carrying or sensory, nerves. Afference implies that revelation comes to us from without, from a transcendent source. Efference from an imminent source. End footnote. Nor is it true that the human soul, even inspired by secret impulses from God and actuated by grace from heaven, can arrive at a knowledge of dogma and of the whole supernatural order, for revelation alone can teach us that this order exists and what it is. We have an instinctive and profound abhorrence for the methods of those who try to establish harmony between philosophy and religion by minimising and compromising. Motives of Credibility Innocent XI condemned the following proposition. The supernatural ascent of faith necessary for salvation is compatible with merely probable knowledge of revelation, nay, even with doubt whether God has spoken. Our faith must be a rationabile obsequium, or reasonable service. We must have a rational certainty of the fact of revelation before we can give the assent of faith, that is, assent to a revealed doctrine, based on the authority of God who has revealed it. The reasons which prove the fact of revelation, or that the proposition is really the word of God, are called motives of credibility. The whole attitude of the mind in an act of faith may be interpreted in the form of a syllogism. Whatever God says is true. But God has said that the church is infallible. Therefore it is true that the church is infallible. The motive that makes us assent to the major premise is the motive of faith. The reason, or reasons that make us assent to the minor premise, are motives of credibility. They establish the fact of revelation. The rationalists, among other things, deny that it is possible to be certain of the fact of revelation. The modernists, like some Protestants, substitute inward feelings or inward religious experience 
for external signs or proofs of the fact of revelation. The true Catholic position is easily understood from the following definition of the Vatican Council. In order that the submission of our faith might be in accordance with reason, God hath willed to give us, together with the internal assistance of the Holy Ghost, external proofs of his revelation, namely, divine facts, and above all, miracles and prophecies, which, while they clearly manifest God's almighty power and infinite knowledge, are most certain divine signs of revelation adapted to the understanding of all men. Wherefore Moses, and all the prophets, and especially Christ our Lord himself, wrought and uttered many and most manifest miracles and prophecies, and, touching the apostles, we read, They, going forth, preached the word everywhere, the Lord working with all, and confirming the word with the signs that followed. And again it is written, We have the more firm prophetical word, whereunto you do well to attend, as to a light that shineth in a dark place. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 But in order that we may fulfil the duty of embracing the true faith, and of persevering therein constantly, God, by means of his only begotten Son, hath instituted the church, and hath endowed her with plain marks, whereby she may be recognised by all men as the guardian and mistress of the revealed word. For to the Catholic Church alone belong all the wonders which have been divinely arranged for the evident credibility of the Christian faith. Moreover, the Church herself, by her wonderful propagation, exalted sanctity and unbounded fertility in all that is good, by her Catholic unity and invincible stability, is both an enduring motive of credibility and an unimpeachable testimony of her divine mission. Whence it is that, like a standard set up unto the nations, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, she calleth to her them that have not yet believed, and maketh her children certain that the faith which they profess resteth on the surest foundation. Session 3, chapter 3. The Catholic Church, therefore, recognises an internal factor of our assent to the fact of revelation, namely, the assistance of the Holy Ghost, and also external signs, namely, divine facts, especially miracles and prophecies. Consequently, the Church has been invested by Christ with plain notes or marks, whereby she may be recognised by all men as the guardian and mistress of revelation. Catholics, therefore, recognise the value of inner experiences in begetting certainty of revelation. But they do not regard these inner experiences as the sole, or even the most important factors, in producing this certainty, as the modernists do. For these inner experiences are subjective, that is, restricted to the person who feels them, and liable to illusion, while the faith is proposed by public authority and exacts public and universal obedience. It must, therefore, be supported by public and plain signs of its divine origin. The following quotation from Schieben's Dogmatique, translated by Wilhelm and Scannell, is very instructive. Although, in theory, 
it would be conceivable that it was only the first promulgators of the faith who had their mission attested by divine signs, and that this fact should have been handed down to us in the same way as any other historical event. Nevertheless, as a matter of fact, and as might be expected from the nature of faith and revelation, God has ordained that the signs or criteria of divine origin should uninterruptedly accompany the preaching of his doctrine. The fact of revelation is thereby brought home to us in a more lively, direct and effective manner. The question is of the greatest importance at the present time, when the divine mission of even Christ himself is the object of so many attacks. When the divine mission of the church was denied, and thereby the existence of a continual living testimony was rejected, faith in the divine mission of Christ thenceforth rested upon merely historical evidence, and so became the prey of historical criticism. Besides, without a continuous divine approbation, Christ's mission becomes such an isolated fact that its full significance cannot be grasped. Some Catholic theologians, in their endeavours to defend Christianity and the Church on purely historical grounds, have not given enough prominence to the constant signs of divine approbation, which have accompanied the Church's preaching in all ages. The Vatican definition has, therefore, been most opportune. It is now of faith that the Church herself is an enduring motive of credibility and an unimpeachable testimony of her divine mission. Her wonderful propagation, in spite of the greatest moral and physical difficulties, not only in her early years, but even at the present day, her eminent sanctity, as manifested in her saints, combined with their miracles, her inexhaustible fertility in every sort of good work, her unity in faith, discipline and worship, her invincible constancy in resisting the attacks of powerful enemies within and without for more than eighteen centuries. All these are manifest signs that she is not the work of man, but the work of God. Tradition The entire Church is the mystical body of Christ, compacted by God, and directed and vivified by the Holy Spirit. The Church is, therefore, a unique society. Its judgment is the judgment of the Holy Spirit, and the truth of the testimony of its witnesses does not depend upon their number, but upon the office which they hold in the Church, and the prerogatives which are attached to that office by divine right. Ecclesiastical tradition, therefore, has a divine and a human element, and differs from all other kinds of tradition in the degree and character of the certainty that it produces. But we should not forget that owing to the human element, there may be a break in the continuity and universality of the tradition, and a temporary, or partial, eclipse of the truth. The great truths of Christianity have always been expressly taught in the Church, considered as a whole. Others of less fundamental character have been implicitly contained in those that were distinctly professed, and by reflection, and the direction of the Holy Spirit, could be easily deduced for universal acceptance. This logical, or dialectical, evolution of dogma is very different from the vital evolution advocated by modernists, who teach that the new dogmatic formulae are not contained in the old, 
which have grown obsolete, but are substituted for them in the changing conditions of their environment, because new ones become necessary as being better adapted to the vital need of the believer. If a doctrine be defined by the supreme magisterium of the church, it becomes a part of the universal ecclesiastical tradition, but even then, the definition is always based on the fact that the tradition in question was universal for a long time. The ordinary channels of tradition are 1. The entire church, head and members. Unanimity of faith may be gathered from professions of faith universally accepted, from catechisms in general use, and from the general practice of the church in her liturgy, discipline or morals, so far as these imply doctrinal truths. It is an old axiom, legem credendi statuat lex orandi. 2. The consent of the faithful, namely, the distinct, universal and constant profession of a doctrine by the whole body of the simple faithful. Thus, before the definition of the Immaculate Conception, the profession and practice of the faithful were appealed to in favour of it. The late Dr. Murray of Maynooth College, in his famous treatise De Ecclesia, has the following passage. As the blood flows from the heart to the body through the arteries, as the vital sap insinuates itself into the whole tree, into each bough and leaf and fibre, as water descends through a thousand channels from the mountain top to the plain, so is Christ's pure and life-giving doctrine diffused, flowing into the whole body through a thousand organs from the Ecclesia docens. 3. The testimony of all the bishops, because the episcopate is the chief organ of infallibility in the church. 4. The perfect representative of tradition, the apostolic see. Moreover, as a consequence of the connection between the head of the church and the Roman see, there exists in the local Roman church, apart from the authoritative decisions of the Pope, a certain actual and normal testimony, which must be considered as an expression of the habitual teaching of the Holy See. The faith professed in the Roman Church is the result of the constant teachings of the Popes, accepted by the laity and taught by the clergy, especially by the College of Cardinals, who take part in the general government of the Church. The external channels are 1. The Testimony of the Fathers In the early days of the Church, when the teaching functions were almost exclusively exercised by the bishops, the extraordinary representatives of apostolic tradition were usually eminent members of the episcopate. They were called Fathers of the Church, because living as they did in the infancy of the Church, when extraordinary means were needed for its preservation, they received a more abundant outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and thus their doctrine represents his teaching in an eminent degree. 2. Doctors of the Church, distinguished for human learning and industry, which they applied to the development and fuller comprehension of doctrine, rather than to the fixing of its substance. Documentary tradition is the expression of the oral and living tradition, and the Holy Ghost assists in the production and preservation of such documents, so that they may present a more or less perfect representation of previous tradition. The writings of the Fathers constitute a written tradition equal in authority 
to the subsequent oral tradition and are an objective rule of faith running side by side with oral tradition, but their authority is dependent on the Church. Official documents comprise decisions of the popes and councils, liturgical documents and monuments, such as liturgies, sacramentaries, ordines romani, pictures, symbols, inscriptions, vases, etc., connected with public worship. All these participate, more or less, in the supernatural character of the living tradition, of which they are the emanation and exponents. The Roman catacombs have acquired great importance as monuments of the earliest tradition. The tradition of a truth being once established, the Catholic has no further interest in the investigation of its continuity, except for the purpose of science and apologetics, because he believes in the divine authority of tradition, and in dealing with Protestants, we may proceed in two ways, either to demonstrate the antiquity of the doctrine, or prove to them the Catholic principles of tradition. With certain limitations, the ordinary preaching of the gospel in parish churches is an important channel of tradition. The fact that the pastor is left in undisturbed possession of his office, that he is in doctrinal communion with his bishop, and, by an apari argument, the bishop is in communion with the Holy Father, the Vicar of Christ, who is in communion with the Holy Spirit of Truth. End of Appendix to Encyclical Letter Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists 